Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. The recent congressional hearings with TikTok CEO Zhou Zichu spotlighted a continued disconnect between lawmakers and social media companies and their users, with lawmakers pushing for tougher restrictions on TikTok and in some cases an outright ban. Many are asking, what are the real solutions to protecting our privacy online? Today, we explore ways to create safer internet spaces. The largest proportion of TikToker, TikTok users ranges from ages 10 to 19. Is a TikTok ban the first step to making internet privacy a human right? Here to help us understand the whole situation better is Lisa Hagen. She's a federal policy reporter for the Connecticut Mirror and Will Marie Escato. She's a U.S. policy analyst for Access Now that defends and extends the digital rights of people and communities at risk. Thank you, Lisa and Will Marie, for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. So, Lisa, I want to start with you. You've been following Senator Richard Blumenthal, who's been very, very vocal about this. He's trying to push a bill called Kids Online Safety Act. This is one of many tech safety bills we're seeing in Congress right now. So can you help us understand what does this bill look like and how does it aim to protect minors? Yeah, as you said, there's many tech-related bills happening that have been kind of efforts on Capitol Hill for several years now. And so... The one by Senator Richard Blumenthal that he's been pushing pretty heavily for the past year is the Kids Online Safety Act. And so it focuses specifically on that online safety aspect. There's other bills that deal with privacy or competition. And so basically the bill would create this threshold, what they call a duty of care, to have social media companies or just any tech used by by minors to have them act in the best interest of young users. And so there's things that parents and kids can use to disable addictive features, to have them log off of or basically opt out of algorithmic recommendations. So several ways to kind of address online safety. And again, that's just one very small component of the larger scheme of of, of tech. And so like we know when it comes to bills like this it seems pretty simple on the on the outside but it's very complicated really because so many people are impacted by this not just children but they are sort of the the crux of this conversation what sort of pushback have we seen against this bill because we're seeing content creators and influencers fight back against these regulations but that aside with this bill, we're also seeing some call this parental surveillance on teens who are vulnerable. Can you help us understand that better? Yes. So basically the concerns are over what some see as over censorship, over moderation. And so it's whether they some take issue with kids who might be in vulnerable positions at home, whether with a parent or you know parental kind of figure, uh, having them be able to monitor what kids see. And so specifically civil liberties groups, LGBTQ groups worry about just kids and minors not being able to access stuff that 
some would see appropriate or helpful in certain situations. And then I think the other thing is, is that there's a lot of politicization over certain issues and there's currently debate and over whether what exactly is appropriate. And so someone had given me an example of the debate over safe ejection sites, whether they help with addiction or not. And so this bill, the critics say, would really give a lot of authority and uh, jurisdiction to state attorneys generals. And they're worried that that could lead to over-moderation for young users. And speaking of which, really, you've, we've seen in Utah, they've recently passed the law prohibiting social media from allowing users under 18 to have accounts without the explicit consent of a parent. Do you think, you know, based on what you're seeing today, might this set precedent for legislation in Congress? It's hard to say at this point. It's definitely one of the more restrictive bills we've seen in the U.S. when it comes to social media. And so something that Blumenthal had said to me was that, setting some type of age limit is really a tough thing to enforce. And that while, you know, young users could be pretty susceptible to harmful content, there are, of course, positives to having them on social media. And so uh, there there are, you know, basically federal level legislation. Uh, One Republican, Senator Josh Hawley, has tried to set a ban for, I think it's anyone under 16 using social media, and that would be nationwide bill. So it's hard to say. And I think because we're probably going to see this be tied up in court, it might be left up to court precedent. And then that might set the tone for whether other states or even at the federal level would want to engage in some sort of ban or major restriction. And speaking of which, we're we're going to be heading into a hot topic here is can you talk to us about why Congress is trying to ban TikTok specifically? So TikTok is definitely in a unique position compared to other social media companies because of that security and privacy concern standpoint, because the parent company is owned by China. So there, you know, there's not a lot of bipartisan consensus on Capitol Hill these days. But at that TikTok hearing, there was definitely concerns from both sides of the aisle about whether the Chinese government has access to U.S. user data. And so I think that's why TikTok is in an you know, definitely different position. But at the same time, this company, this you know, social media platform operates similarly. And there are similar data concerns, whether, you know, people who use Facebook or Instagram or other social media sites, but it's definitely that security component that puts it in a different category. And what have we seen or heard from TikTok? You know, what, how do you think the CEO fared in these hearings? Definitely under major pressure. I mean, you had the you know, the chairwoman of the committee that he was, you know, testifying to just straight out say that, you know, she would want to ban this app. So, you know, he definitely wasn't at a, in a place that was a, had very many friendly faces. I, I know the company is trying to come up with this way that U.S. data would be housed and stored on U.S. servers. And so that that is something that TikTok is trying to, you know, maybe assuage concerns about, you know, any security concerns in U.S. data in China. And so, uh, but it just didn't seem like they took that very well. I know it's a major effort. It's a ton of money going into that. I know they expressed concerns about being being able to implement something like that over the next year or so. So, uh, but again, still hard to say what Congress might do. And of course, there's still pressure from the White House as well. So we would see maybe something that President Joe Biden would do on his own. Right. I mean, it did strike me, not surprising, but a lot of very passionate and very powerful um, comments during the hearings. And 
So that's not surprising. But what sort of opposition have we seen from TikTok? You know, what are you hearing from their perspective? I mean, they're pushing back against the notion that, you know, the Chinese government has access to millions of people in the U.S. I think I think they admitted to some, you know, data needing to be wiped out or taken off. But uh, they basically very you know aggressively pushed back against the concerns of the lawmakers. And, you know, again, this uh, this thing called Project Texas would be basically, again, storing U.S. data on U.S. servers. I think I see that as a major fix. And uh, it just didn't seem to really convince lawmakers one way or another. And Will Mari, I want to bring you in. You know, we've been talking about TikTok with Lisa, and she's mentioned a little bit about what's going on. But can you help, you know, for those of us who haven't been following the congressional hearings, what is going on with TikTok? And why was a CEO called to testify before Congress? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm happy to answer that question. Um, so for those who aren't aware, uh, so about a, a week, or March 23rd, um, TikTok's CEO testified before Congress following all of these national privacy and security concerns that have attracted congressional scrutiny in the recent months and really in, in, in the past couple of years as well. Um, and so government officials have claimed that TikTok's Chinese headquartered parent company, ByteDance, puts our user data at risk um, of people living in the United States, a uh, risk of Chinese surveillance and manipulation that the Chinese Communist Party can access Americans' user data or spread misinformation, misinformation directly to us. And so the hearing itself was dedicated to these national security privacy concerns, as well as the impact of TikTok on um, teens' mental health and uh, just kind of their um, overall influence on society as a whole as well. Um, but very much so the national security kind of got the spotlight with the CCP. And so to combat these concerns, we've also seen policymakers, they've introduced uh, several bills to restrict or ban the app. Um, apps like TikTok linked to countries deemed as foreign adversaries. So that's really what we're seeing right now. Um, there's been a lot of talk around the Restrict Act, which would give uh, the Secretary of Commerce the authority to essentially restrict, uh, identify and restrict tech deals and products from these type of um, adversary countries that are listed, which would include China. So I and, want, oh, go for it. Yeah, no, I was going to, yeah, so I was going to say it was a very, very long hearing, um, over four hours, I believe it was almost over five hours. And um, yes, uh, lots of questions about, you know, how the Chinese Communist Party can access their data, if they can access it at all, and what they can do with that data. Um, very pointed questions not not a very uh, friendly conversation, um, a bit hostile at times. So uh, I, I do feel as though it was a missed opportunity to get some real answers on their data collection practices as a whole as well. Um, so I'll stop there. Sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. And I definitely want to get into that in a little bit. Um, and I also would like to ask you about, you know, what you're hearing from content creators. But just because we started the show talking about minors with Lisa, how social media impacts them. But now we're also talking about national security. So from where you're standing, it seems to be an issue that is impacting everything. Is it about minors or is it about privacy and surveillance? What do you think about that? I think it's all social media platforms impact everyone that's on them, not just minors. And so I think that what we see a lot of the time is that there's, um, uh, you know, the rationales put forth um, uh, 
to protect the children. And so that's a lot of the motivation behind a lot of bad bills that we see. Um, so as um, Lisa was speaking on earlier, there's a lot of legislative proposals that are trying to mandate age verification requirements. And those raise serious risk of harm to marginalized children, especially um, LGBTQ plus people, especially trans kids by state AGs and in the future FTC. So I definitely just wanted to plug that in there <laughs> about COSA. Um, but yeah, so I do believe that the attention to the impact on children has um, kind of catapulted this conversation moving forward since we've since the Francis Haugen testimony as well. Um, but you know, it's bigger than it's it's bigger than just one app. It is about human rights, human 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 rights impacting everyone, and so um, you know the this isn't new. Lisa mentioned it earlier that you know. TikTok isn't the only company, isn't the only entity um, collecting our data and is at risk of unauthorized part parties accessing our data. And so, um, you know, the U.S. government has a long history of using our own tech companies to spy on people at home and around the world. And so these surveillance concerns, they're not new, but it does demonstrate the need for, number one, a federal comprehensive data protection regulation um, that would mandate a lot of, uh, you know, uh, would mandate data minimization provisions that would really limit what data companies can get from us. If they don't have our data, then they can't abuse it. But it also demonstrates the need for global surveillance reform as a whole um, and for the U.S. to really lead the way um, in democratic states and uh, to lead the way in respecting international human rights laws. So um, it's definitely bigger than one app. It's it's definitely goes beyond children. Um, not to say, of course, right, not to minimize the impact on children, but, you know, it gets really muddy there, right? Um, when I was going to say, you mentioned earlier that the congressional hearing went for five hours. And based on what I'm hearing now, I'm certainly sure we can do five hours on this. But unfortunately, we only had a very short amount of time. But I do want to ask, you know, like we mentioned before, everything is so connected and and not to not to minimize minors experience. But you're right. We were talking about minors. We're talking about surveillance. But we're also talking about content creators who rely on their businesses on these social media platforms. Can you talk about what has the response been from them and how does it impact them? Absolutely. Um, so I think that what I'm seeing um, from the public, um, from small business owners, from uh, online content creators is, you know, a very real concern. This, These are people um, content creators who rely on the platform for their livelihood. And we're seeing so many beautiful stories of, you know, people's businesses going viral or a first generation's um, uh, first generation student or, you know, child's, sorry, yeah, son, daughter, I can't remember specifically, but, um, you know, really helping their, their, their immigrant families, businesses, and just beautiful examples like that. I, I won't digress, but I think that what we're seeing is a real fear um, and it's warranted. You know, if we were to ban TikTok, it would significantly impact their livelihood, especially the creators, black and brown creators um, that have built up these large followings and they rely on their platforms to reach specific audiences um, and generate money income through their sponsored deals, their content, um, and different deals that they get with with uh, with different uh, sponsors. So the fact that 
they could risk losing their primary means of earning income is is extremely alarming and something that, you know, shouldn't be swept under the rug and does deserve to be talked about. Um, And aside from specific content creators, banning TikTok would also impact the businesses that work with those creators. So there are businesses that rely on TikTok to reach their target audiences. I've also seen several, several um, businesses come out or, you know, just people giving their their firsthand narratives of how TikTok really helped propel their business um, to target a specific audience and promote their products and services. So, you know, TikTok is a very unique app with its short form content. It isn't um, glam and glitz and filter. It's a bit more real, you know, and so um, you know, banning that these businesses would need to find a new way to reach their target target audience. Um, and it may not hit the same, right? It may it, it's not going to have the same impact or the same reach as it would perhaps choosing another uh, alternative. And so, another just another note that you know I've been thinking a lot about is um, the importance of of Black and Brown content creators and Hispanics, particularly, are one of the fastest growing demographics, and we're making a rapid ascent into consumer buying power and affluence. So as we continue to grow and make kind of our consumer preferences very clear um, and demonstrating, you know, in the Latino culture, uh, a lot of Latinos is really about customer loyalty. And um, it's crucial for for brands to kind of engage in an authentic way with certain demographics. So it's, it's just very interesting to see how how TikTok has has kind of contributed to this evolution of of reaching specific targeted audiences, specific communities, allowing for, you know, people to see themselves on the screen in a very authentic manner. Um, And so, yeah, uh, you know, and I'd be remiss to say, aside from content creators, aside from businesses, you know, people that use the app just every day to stay connected, to learn new things, to be entertained, um, they're going to be impacted. So it would have a significant impact on so many people, um, including content creators, businesses, and and users. And so, yeah, again, I can I can go on and on and on, but um, uh, there's just so many wonderful examples of businesses that, um, you know, eighty to ninety percent of users discover their apps through t- or discover the product or their service through TikTok. Um, and so I've seen stories like that. As well. I can certainly certainly understand that. And you talked about how an outright ban could impact these small businesses. And I want to ask, do you think, does Congress understand how much money is behind this industry? Especially you just mentioned it's such a wide range as well. I think they know, but they don't know. I think there's an idea behind it, but to really think of the harm to the community you know, that's going to be most impacted, I'm I'm not quite sure if that has resonated clearly. I think that there is a major disconnect between the generations, right? I think that unfortunately there's a lot of, and this is just my personal opinion. Again, I'm not, you know, this this part right here what I'm about to say, I think that there's a lot of downplaying. Um, what content creators do, right? And their reach and um, just that they are entrepreneurs. So I think that just in general, the lack of kind of valuing their work um, or their reach or their impact on society, I'm not sure if that's completely resonated yet. I do think that there are some members of Congress that do get it. Um, And so, you know, we're talking about their constituents that are going to be directly affected. So 
I think that this deserves a lot more attention. Um, you know, there should be a hearing on the Restrict Act. There should be more investigation on TikTok. You know, if there is, if there are national privacy concerns and they're impacting specifically, um, you know, specific marginalized groups, there should be more transparency around that. So, um, you know, instead of instead of pursuing a national ban on social on a social media app, I think that Congress really should move quickly to adopt a comprehensive federal data protection and address those privacy concerns. Um, and so. Well, I was going to say. I digressed uh, for a second. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no worries. <laughs> He's going uh, down a tangent. <laughs> no, I feel you there. Um, there's a reason why I'm here. And I, I just want to touch on this real quick with Lisa, too. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left. But speaking of disconnect, there does seem to be a disconnect between tech creators and lawmakers. You know, as you're following this story, Lisa, you know, what are your thoughts in terms of that disconnect? Yeah, we've seen that for, for quite some time. I mean, this came up in past congressional hearings, especially with the Facebook ones that there's just a disconnect with lawmakers. It's a generational thing. They're not as well versed in how social media works. And so, and, the, and that really does complicate how to properly scrutinize them and try to implement some kind of legislation. And so I think we're seeing this issue get more attention. And so there's more debate about the best way to regulate them. And there seems to be a, a growing understanding of how this all works. But something I just wanted to reiterate again and that well Mari was talking about too is that just again a ban is tricky on solely TikTok because yes there are security concerns that are unique to them but the, all these social media companies really operate the same way they all have you know face scrutiny over data and privacy and content and so banning one company doesn't really address the root problem because others are operating that same way. You've been listening to Lisa Hagan. She's the federal policy reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa. Great to be with you. Uh, Wilmari Escado is a U.S. policy analyst for Access Now. She'll be staying with us. Joshua Tucker is a professor of politics and co-director for the NYU Center for Social Media and Politics. He'll be joining us to talk more about how social media bans could impact users, especially business owners. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. 
So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking about how lawmakers are trying to push policies that would protect kids from certain social media influences like self-harm or online bullying. But there's pushback from content creators who say these platforms are also a way to build livelihoods and communities. Joining us now to help break all of us, all of that down is Will Mari Escato, who is a U.S. policy analyst for Access Now, and Joshua Tucker. He's a professor of politics and co-director for the NYU Center for Social Media and Politics. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks. The pleasure to be here. And just to kick off this conversation, want to share while speaking at the congressional hearing, TikTok CEO Zhou Zichu made several commitments to make the app more secure. Here's what he had to say. Making the following commitments to you and to all our users. Number one, we will keep safety, particularly for teenagers, as a top priority for us. Number two, we will firewall protected U.S. data from unwanted foreign access. Number three, TikTok will remain a place for free expression and will not be manipulated by any government. And fourth, we will be transparent and we will give access to third-party independent monitors to remain accountable for our commitments. Joshua, I want to ask you to respond to what Zhou Zixu has to say. You know, what are your thoughts? Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on here today. Uh, So I want to jump into the fourth part here because I think what's going on here is... TikTok is getting a ton of attention from the national security perspective because of the link to China. Uh, However, a lot of what everybody is talking about here is stuff that's common across social media platforms generally. So when we begin to think about these potential harms that exist from social media platforms, the things that we're talking about here that are not China specific, right, is that social media could be used to spread misinformation, that social media could have negative impacts on people's mental health, Um, these are questions and that we don't know what's being collected in terms of data about us. Now, the issue of what data is being collected about are us as users of these social media platforms. This is something that feels scary when we think about that data potentially getting into the hands of the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party. And that's why we have this, uh, and that's why in the quotes right now, the big question, this Project Project Texas about walling off U.S. data, putting U.S. data, you know, so that it can't be accessed out of the United States. But these are all big picture questions about social media generally. And that's why I want to go to the final one of these questions, right, which is the point that he makes at the end about making access to this data available to third parties who are able to learn what's actually going on in the platforms. This has been a huge question across all of these social media platforms, right? As we think about this, as we think about this world that we've entered into, where so much of people's lives have migrated online. I work at the NYU Center for, I co-direct the NYU Center for Social Media and Politics. We're really interested in the impact on political life, but you can think about this in terms of people's social life. You can think about it in terms of people's mental health. You can think about it in all sorts of areas. And we now live in this world where there is tremendous amount of records of what's happening to people on these platforms, 
But at the same time, these platforms are enormous, right? So trying to figure out what's happening at scale on these platforms is a huge challenge. And it's a challenge that is much, much more made much, much more complicated by the fact that we don't necessarily have access to this data the same way that we do, say, for example, data that's produced by the government, like unemployment statistics or what the results of elections are. And so this final point here, I think, is the key point, because until we have people who are outside of these platforms who have access to this data, we won't actually know what's really going on on these platforms. And to the extent that we try to legislate about these platforms, what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing, it's almost as if policymakers are doing this in a way that's, that they're, they're acting blind, right? These platforms are so big, right? Um, and so I think this final point here is something that we kind of want to really pay attention here because it's not just about TikTok, it's about all of the social media platforms. Can we set up a regimen in this country where outside researchers are able to access data and therefore are able to supply policymakers, supply the media, supply the public with information about what's happening on these platforms. Well, and then you mentioned, you know, speaking of access to data, there's also been some proposals to start fixing social media by allowing independent researchers to analyze those data, as you mentioned just now. And you have an article published with Brookings where you say there remains a real risk that legislation, particularly as it relates to content moderation, will be based on the snippets of data and research found in the recent document disclosures. To fill the void, Congress should mandate an unprecedented corporate data sharing program to enable outside independent researchers to conduct the kinds of anal analysis on social media platforms that firm insiders routinely perform. So I think that's sort of a snippet of what you just said, and I know you mentioned it a little bit, but can you explain what would that be like and why is research around social media so limited right now? Right. I mean, let me let's even back up one step further, which is why it's so important, right? If we think about social media, it has this kind of combination of three factors, one of which I was talking about a second ago, which is that it's enormous and just huge, huge amounts of data. The second thing is there's intense public interest in the effect of social media on society. This is everything we've been talking about here, ranging from questions of health to national security to quality of democratic elections to relationship with democratic legitimacy. But the third thing about social media that we don't want to lose track of is that it's also easy to find examples of anything. And the reason it's easy to find examples of everything is because social media is something that comes to us on our phones. It comes to us on our computers. Um, and it's in a sense, it's optimized for search, right? Anytime you go to a social media platform, there are options to search for things that you're interested in. Which means if you go looking for something on an enormous platform, you can probably find an example of that. But you combine that with the first part, that it's it, it, these platforms are so enormous, and the challenge becomes in an era when people are super, you know, hyper interested in what's happening on these platforms, how do we get from, oh, look, here's an example of something that happened. This seems compelling. This seems like something that's happened systematically to actually knowing, well, is this really happening systematically? Is this something that's going on uh, throughout the platform? And that's what we were getting at in the Brookings article uh, where we were writing about this idea about you know snippets of information. It's really easy in this kind of an information environment for someone to find an example of something on social media, to extrapolate from that example and think that that's representative of what's going on generally, come up with a story about why that's happening, and then boom, because there's so much public interest, the public starts to think, oh, this is what's really going on here. Then you see pressure on legislatures to act on it for this reason. But 
doing the work of actually identifying whether there are causal relationships, whether things on happening on social media are causing things, and also to understand whether these things are happening at scale, this takes systematic access to data to understand what's happening across the platforms. So that's why we think this is so important. And in fact, when we think about, you know, this is the question about what policies should be implemented here. This is like, you know, there's been multiple rounds of this. There was lots of discussion about content moderation policies. There's been lots of discussion about antitrust policies. Now we're getting into discussions about banning particular apps. But throughout all of this, we've always tried to argue that the one, the starting point for policy regulation needs to be something where you make data accessible to people who will analyze this data and put this data in the results into the public domain, instead of us being in this weird situation where we have these platforms that are so enormous and having, you know, and are so intertwined with our lives. But what we know about those platforms is kind of limited to what the platforms want to tell us with the limited exceptions of where scholars are able to be able to push push around and try to find data and be creative and do these kinds of things. So I think that's why it's so important. Well, I, say, I think, just Joshua, a different kind of storytelling is what the data tells us, right? So what do you think this data could tell us about the content we end up engaging in and what content is prioritized? Well, let me let me give you one example here, which is this huge, which is you know at the at the at the essence of the TikTok discussion, but it's been at the essence of discussion of a lot of things about social media. There is a tremendous concern about people going on social media and being exposed to information that's not true, right? We worry about this from a health perspective. We worried about this during COVID, right? If you go onto social media and you hear that drinking bleach is going to cure you, and it turns out that drinking bleach of COVID and turns out drinking bleach is going to kill you, right? That has like a direct threat to people's lives. If we think about politics, you go on social media, you see all sorts of stories that are incorrect about elections being fraudulent or elections being manipulated by foreign actors, and you begin to think that you can't trust U.S. elections. That gets at the, you know, we worry that that would get at the heart of our people's, you know, the legitimacy of our democratic institutions, the sort of what makes the United States the United States. And so we're really, really worried about whether people being on social media is leading them to believe things that are not true. And there's a whole big reason why we are concerned about this. People used to get information from more hierarchical news sources. They were sort of gatekeepers in place who were professional journalists. And now sort of anyone can produce information. So there's lots of concerns about this. But um, one thing we've learned from research over and over again is that exposure to disinformation or sharing of disinformation this is not uniformly distributed across the population. This is just not something that's happening equally to everybody. And in fact, what you have is something that's called a power law, where you have large numbers of people who are having sort of lower levels of this exposure and small numbers of people who are having really high levels of this exposure. And so if you're a policymaker and you're thinking about what are the correct kind of policies, that seems like really important information. Do you think this is something that's affecting everybody equally? Is it affecting people at high levels or low levels? Or do you think it's having these kind of differential effects? And, and this is the kind of thing that we sort of want research to be able to inform policymakers. And Will Mari, I want to bring you into in response to what Joshua was saying. You know, what could this data tell us about algorithms, content moderation, and privacy? And what about the ways our companies are harvesting and monetizing data? Absolutely, yeah. Joshua had some excellent points, and I think you know it's just so important to highlight that without this data, the reason why the data is gold um, is you know with very few excep exceptions, we don't have a consistent way to measure the scope and the scale of threats to privacy and freedom of expression online. 
And so right now, these companies, they have no obligation to disclose the censorship or hand over any type of user data. And that type of transparency reporting really helps us better inform users where and how they're at risk. And it helps um, lawmakers draft to be, be, be in a position that they're very well informed to draft laws that can actually safeguard human rights. And so this is also something necessary for businesses to realize their human rights responsibilities and you know investors and peer companies and users depend on companies to respect rights and and remedy abuses so um in in regards to so, so again you know our data is gold that's why they're collecting so much of it from us and so there's so much that we can do with social media data and um as Joshua was is was highlighting you know by studying how this information spreads on social media, research can really better understand how to combat the spread of misinformation. Or um, when you're thinking about how social media affects people's behavior, by studying that data, researchers can really help better design social media platforms that are beneficial to people or develop new technologies that can improve the user experience. And so when you're thinking about you know, what social media data can tell us a lot about algorithms and content moderation. Um, there's just so much possibility. It can show us how algorithms are used to rank and recommend content, um, how they identify and remove harmful content. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, how they affect people's behavior. Uh, for civil society organizations, is extremely helpful to help us advocate for better content moderation practices. So, we can see how the algorithms, like I said, amplify harmful content like Joshua was talking about, hate speech or misinformation. And then it can really help orgs make a case for changes um, of how social media platforms moderate that content. And lawmakers develop policies that govern social media platforms um, in a human rights respecting manner. So it can really be a valuable tool for understanding all of this um, and, and to make informed decisions about how to address the challenges of online harms. So we've been talking about data a lot, and, and but Joshua, you said that independent academic researchers remain reliant on the kindness of platforms to make data available. This seems to me like a huge barrier and impossible to get real data on how these companies operate. And so if tech companies aren't going to allow outside researchers to access their data, how are we going to get that data? Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting you use the word kindness. I think you know public pressure plays a real role in in this regard, and you know, and I think that that it's a super important thing to realize. Yeah, so we are in a world where at the end of the day, access to data is dependent on the platforms. Now, outside researchers are very creative about how they go about getting access to this data, um, but you know, platforms can assist in that process in a whole wide range of, you know, going all the way from collaborations with platforms to with researchers to make data available that might not normally be available to setting up uh, what are known as like APIs, which are ways that you can easily communicate with these platforms to download data for research to sort of not not bothering people when they actually go ahead and try to scrape the information. So but at the end of the day, Platforms can change no matter how it is that you're going about getting this data, you're ultimately at the whim of platforms changing. And this has never been more clear than in the present moment where we have had basically a decade of research about Twitter and Twitter's impact on society because Twitter is a platform where tweets are basically almost all made publicly. And Twitter has been pretty good over the last decade about making data available for academics. Now, in the last 
uh, basically in the last few weeks, this policy has changed rather dramatically. And you're going to see a huge drop off in the amount of research that academics are, are able to do. That means a huge drop off in what the public can know about what journalists can be informed about, what policymakers can be informed about. Now, there are murmurings coming out of Twitter that following these changes, there's going, they're going to come back to reinstating academic access. And I don't think Twitter is making these changes because they want to punish academics or they want to downgrade academic research. They're making these changes because they're trying to make money with the new ownership of Twitter. And they're and what we put in the Brookings piece and in the book, Social Media and Democracy, that Nate and I also wrote about, which the Brookings piece was sort of an excerpt from or edited volume in the final chapter of that, we refer to this where, where you end up in this situation because access to data for outside researchers is not mandated by government because it happens when platforms allow it to happen, you get into the situation where the outside research is kind of collateral damage of other decisions that are being made. So Twitter makes a set of decisions about its new business model and boom, all of a sudden the public is going to know much, much less about what's happening out here. And the same thing holds for the other social media platforms. And so that's why in the book we write, you know, this is such an important question. What is the impact of social media on society that those of us who are researching this have to try everything we possibly can? We have to work with the platforms when we can. We have to work without the platforms when we can. But we also have to work, and this is just becoming more and more apparent, to try to work with regulators in order to mandate this kind of what you call this kind of, you know, large scale data access. Now, I want to be very clear about this. When we talk about mandating data access, we're not saying platforms should just put people's private data online and anybody can download it and scroll down and try to find information about their ex-partner, right? What we're talking about is using techniques that have been developed across the scientific community to study things like medical issues, um, to allow researchers to access data in secure, safe environments with strict guidelines in place about what they can do about it. I mean, it's a weird situation where in a way it's much easier for a researcher to get access to your health records to do research than it is to get access to your Facebook posts or your YouTube viewing history. So what we want to do is I think we want to move forward and rectify this. So I'm encouraged that in this particular conversation, in the quote, the clip that you played us at the beginning, when we're, we're talking about all the kinds of things that TikTok can do to rectify um, this its situation and, and deal with people's concerns, that they've included in that list, making data available to outside researchers. Now, the proof is always in the pudding. It's easy to say something. It's harder to do it. Well, we only have a couple minutes left here, Joshua, but I do want to ask, you know, I think everyone on the show has so far mentioned it's not just one social media company, but it's basically all or many of them. So how do you think this research might help Congress put forward proposals that's not just targeting that one, but our overall rights online and a lot of other social media companies? Yeah, I would just say that all of these questions are about all social media companies. What are they doing with our data, right? What is their obligation to take the data that they have collected and make that data available for society to understand how these giant changes that are impacting society that are you know that are occurring in our lives right now how they affect things like health like Demo democrat the functioning of democracy these questions are all going to come up again with ai and large language models and gpt chat um and we also want to know you know like we want to understand what are the implications of people using this platform which means that they have to facilitate access to research to try to be to try to answer these these important questions the platforms have to be 
recruited in to understand that this is part of their obligation as platforms to make this data available when you're this huge and have the potential to have this much impact on society. You know, it's the same thing. We don't say to car companies, oh, you know, you don't have to tell us about safety recalls or you don't have to tell us about problems with accidents, right? Like this is something, this is the way our society is supposed to work. Businesses have an opportunity to produce products that people want to use. We talked earlier, you know, there was a big discussion earlier in the show about the value of TikTok. I also want to echo, I think this generational divide thing is a huge question, right? You know, there are a ton of kids who are going to be super upset uh, if TikTok suddenly disappears tomorrow. But I think we want to, you know, we want to think about, you know, what makes TikTok different here is the question of whether a foreign country, right, gets access to this data. But I would remind everybody that this is exactly the same question that's being wrestled with in the rest of the world with US-owned companies, right? Uh, you know, and so are we, you know, what are the implications of the United States, which has been arguing passionately, you know, throughout the world, about having about the importance of other countries not banning U.S. social media uh, products. Uh, what happens when the U.S. suddenly turns around and becomes a country that's banning social media products from another country? So I think that's an important part of this discussion um, that, you know, for people who are in authoritarian countries who are using U.S. social media platforms, it's worth thinking about the optics and the implications of this discussion as well. Well, thank you so much for that point. You've been hearing from Will Murray Escato, who is a U.S. policy analyst for Access Now, and Joshua Tucker, who's a professor of politics and co-director for the NYU Center for Social Media and Politics. Will Murray, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Catherine. It was a pleasure. Joshua will be staying with us. And coming up next, a computer science professor from Wesleyan University is joining us to talk about the challenges of privacy rights when it comes to the Internet. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're jumping straight back to talk about privacy laws when it comes to social media platforms with Sebastian Zimmick. He's a assistant professor of computer science at Wesleyan University. Thanks so much, Sebastian, for joining us today. Thank you, Catherine, for having me here. So you've been listening to the conversation over the last hour. Can you talk about what are some of the things that jumped out to you? Well, I tend to think of online privacy from a systems perspective. And so I think, you know, we try uh, or we should try to address privacy from not individual instances, you know, like banning this app or, uh, you know, kind of tagging on privacy to individual situations that we encounter, but rather we should try to fundamentally um, you know, build privacy into our lives. And so, um, you know, what's important from my perspective is that the internet becomes a fundamentally private system. Um, and so, uh, you know, that that is not something that we can accomplish uh, in just one year. Um, that, that, you know, takes time because it was, it was not built that way originally. Um, but, you know, that is the overall uh, path, you know, that I think that, you know, would be useful to take 
um, and that you know along the way will resolve many of the uh, you know the, the the problems that we actually encounter here. And why wasn't privacy thought about when the internet came along? You know, you mentioned that that's not a part of it. So why do you think that is? That's a very good question. Mm, you know, you can think of it the way that you know the different applications on the internet did not need privacy initially, at least, you know, many of them. For example, if we think of the web, so the World Wide Web, when it got started, was a system for exchanging documents. So, you know, you requested to see a document from a server, and then that was sent to your browser. Um, and so there, there, you know, there was no social media. Um, we did not log in into different servers, did not do online banking, did not have health information online or personal health information. And so there was less of a need to build privacy um, into the web. And um, now that, you know, the the infrastructure has evolved, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the privacy protection have not evolved with it. Um, and so that's, you know, really the root cause of uh, of many of the problems that we see. So we only have about a minute left, but I do want to ask Sebastian, you know, do you see the need for more transparency and research around privacy online? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think um, that that is really one of the main problems. If you, as uh, somebody using the web, do not see actually the the, the vast data that is collected about you, um, the, the problem seems smaller. And if you if you would really see it, if it would be surface to you, it would, if it would be more transparent, then people would uh, would much would have a much different opinion, I think, um, of you know what it really means to protect their privacy. Thank you so much for that. You've been listening to Sebastian Zimmick. He's an assistant professor of computer science at Wesleyan University, and Joshua Tucker. He's a professor of politics and co-director for the NYU Center for Social Media and Politics. I want to thank both of you for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>